Hello and welcome to That Blind Last Podcast. Today, my guest is Martin Sibley. Martin, how are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, good to be here with you, Jamie. Thank you for coming on my podcast to talk about your journey to where you are now. Um, first of all, how, how have you been? How's, how's 2021 treating you so far? Yeah, pretty uh, busy. I'm obviously yeah, still in lockdown. I live in Cambridgeshire, so I um, don't know how global your listeners are but yeah it's obviously the UK has been pretty locked down now for a while so uh, not a lot going on out and about socially but uh, work's been very busy so uh, yeah certainly not no dull moment anyway. Mm. Was, uh, was Christmas and New Year's a bit obviously probably for everyone but a bit of a quiet one? Yeah in a way it was quite nice to, to not be as busy and gallivanting and almost you know when you go on holiday or when you have Christmas you then kind of need a, a chill afterwards because of all the busyness so yeah it was quite nice to really just be at home with my fiance and our, our dog and watch some movies and eat food and yeah it's just quite rejuvenating actually how about yours yeah mom mom was just saying just, just like in in a way i was, I was glad a lot of people say this but i was glad it was over in the end mm-hmm. just because i it's just, just get this out of the way <laughs> just Let's just try and get back to normal as, as quickly as, yeah, as possible. Sure. Get our lives back, but yeah. So, would all my guests, I pretty much like to go uh, back to the beginning and talk about you as a as a, as a kid, really, like growing up and into education. So, yeah, the stage is yours. Sure. Yeah, well, yeah thanks again for inviting me on the show. Um, I, I guess... Uh, you know, in terms of background, I, I have a disability which is called spinal muscular atrophy. Um, so day to day, it means that since I was about three years old, I got my first power wheelchair um, and I'm always sat all my waking hours. I'm sat in the chair. Um, it's quite funny when it's sort of done talks for school kids and, and they think that maybe I sleep in the chair as well. And I explain, no, I do get hoisted. I've got a, a sort of lifting device that my personal care assistants used to, you know, get get a bath and, you know, get get in bed and all that sort of stuff. So, um, but yeah, so obviously I mentioned the care assistants. I've always had to have a lot of support day to day with with lots of personal care and daily living tasks. Um, grew up in Cambridgeshire, as I also mentioned. So went to local primary school where I don't really remember anyone else with a disability um, at the primary school, although obviously my understanding of what disability is going into adulthood and becoming more of, of a career, really, which we'll come on to later. Um, but yeah, looking back, there actually were other disabled students at the primary school, but there was no one in a wheelchair, like you know, how how I my particular disability was. Um, going to secondary school, uh, that was more difficult. There there were steps and lack of access uh, in the local one so I had to go further afield to secondary school which was quite a big deal that I had to leave all my mates behind um, go on a longer journey every morning and evening on an adaptive bus with a few other wheelchair users but I suppose once I'd kind of adapted to the new normal I think as people we are quite good at you know, adapting to change once that, that first impact is not pleasant we we then do get used to the new normal and yeah I settled in and had a good time there and um, went on to do GCSEs and A-levels and um, the, the school took us on a couple of holidays in the summer with the other disabled students and did some sort of adapted adventure trips to Devon and Cornwall and, and all that good stuff um, and then yeah I mean I, I don't know if you've got any particular questions or thoughts on the childhood stuff, but um, the, the next part of the journey would probably be go, going off to university, which was a, a big one for lots of reasons. But is there anything you wanted to unpack more on the childhood side? Uh, yeah, so obviously going through primary, did you, did you ever find it difficult, kind of the, the social side of it, or did you find that the kids that you was in a class with were quite uh, kind of understanding almost? Yeah, I, I would say they were very understanding. And, um, you know, I remember sort of something that got said over the years from different people at different 
points in my life that was meant as a compliment, which was like, oh, I never really, even though you're in a wheelchair, I never really think of you as disabled. And, and I think at that time, um, it was very much taken in that sort of, you know, being in a chair doesn't hold you back and the, the care needs doesn't hold you back. And I, and I think there is a positive to that. But I think also as I've got older, you know, I've become more almost proud and identify as disability. And then I would sort of say, well, actually, you know, I, I, I'm happy and proud of, of my difference and of my diversity and of my disability. So it's quite an interesting balance point I think on that but no most of all everyone you know just sort of they, they'd give me a hand with anything that physically I couldn't do but essentially I was you know one of the lads that the boys I grew up with and we would go and play football at break and lunchtime and after school and I was in my chair and they were running around but we yeah very much sort of I got involved in in all the social side and you know of course there are some kids that ask questions like why are you in a wheelchair and, and as a kid you you take it at face value and you answer and that was just quite a normal educational process I suppose but then yeah there's always the one or two kids that are a bit more nasty and you might call it more bullying but I think I've always you know been the type of person that I've always had a good group of friends around me that would stick up for me and, and back me up if someone was being a bit nasty but I've always just been very sociable and positive and you know sort of managed to diffuse those bullying moments at the same time so I, I wouldn't ever say I was bullied it was more just if and when you get the odd kid that's a bit nasty you know I was able to deal with those situations quite quickly. Yeah. And would you say that the fact that you saw that going back to what you said this out seeing that people saying oh, I don't see you're disabled is that kind of more obviously Every kid went in primary school and in secondary school. In some cases, you want to be kind of, I don't know, it's the horrible word, but as as normal and or as part of the group as possible. So any any chance or any you know anything that someone said to you that made you feel as normal as possible, you'd you'd take it and wouldn't see, wouldn't really think about it. You just take it for what it's worth. Yeah, I, I guess as a sort of reference, as I got older, I saw some of what how that comment could be a little bit negative. As I said, that that fact of, well, you know, you shouldn't hide your disability or your difference and be proud of it. And I think there's almost just a massive contradiction in this narrative that, you know, on the one side, we want the world to be fully inclusive and not to be treated differently because you're in a wheelchair or you're blind or whatever it might be. But then on the other side, there are things that I need the building to have wheelchair access. And I don't want people to call me horrible names about being in a wheelchair. So I think we have to simplify it and just say, let's treat each other as people and let's reduce the barriers, whatever those barriers may be, that stop people being included. But I think that there can be a confusion and a contradiction between those two points of being treated the same, but also the, the factual elements that have to be accounted for from having a disability. You can't ignore it. And I, and I remember going to university, I probably was more trying to assimilate and fit in to the detriment of some of my needs or some of the facts of being in a wheelchair. And I, and I think I went through sort of a growth process of actually more accepting okay I am in the chair and, and embracing that more positively so I, I guess it's a balance between those two points in the end yeah so going through secondary school did you ever was there anything that stuck out to you like uh, education wise like subjects that you you thought yeah I want to carry this on beyond education yeah I suppose um Probably the, the, the kind of maths and science and geography were the, the ones that I look back and definitely do remember enjoying. And then maybe the clarity of of enjoying them was that I went on and did um, for A-levels, maths, economics, geography. And I, I did physics for a little while, but I dropped it to fit in um, physio. 
Um, so again, there's that sort of balancing around, you know, not just socially as we talked about previously, but educationally. I was striving, you know, to do my levels and to go to university and you know, be was quite academic, but there was still the things about needing to stand in the standing frame and do physio and hydrotherapy swimming, which was vital because of my health condition. So there was a bit of a juggling act in, in that context as well. But yeah, definitely the, the sort of um, maths, business, science, geography were the, were the ones I always enjoyed. And then after A-level, um, I did economics at university and then a master's in marketing. Um, so yeah, sort of that, they're the, the areas I look back on and remember enjoying and, and doing more of. So you did very much take what you liked in secondary school and took it all the way through, through levels and through university and came out with one of the best things you could possibly come out with in a master's. <laughs> so it's Yeah, that. and I'll be honest, like the, the, the master's was a little bit as much of I was having the time of my life socially at uni and I didn't want to leave and I didn't want to go off into the world of work just yet. And so... You know, I, I studied hard for the Masters and I, I passed it and I got good grades and I enjoyed the academic side for an extra year. But it was also about, I, I moved from Cambridge here to Coventry and I'd met lots of friends and, yeah, as I said, had a very rich social life. So I, I definitely partly decided to do the Masters so that I could continue that, that sort of university student life another year longer as well. You uh, you went to university in my home city. <laughs> are you in Coventry, are you? Yeah, I am, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I loved it there. I was there, obviously, four years, you know, three years bachelor's and then one year master's, yeah, four years. And I was in um the Singer Hall's residence. Do you know much about where the, the university no, stuff I, is? I know where the university I'm not. I'm not too clued up on the, uh, the ins and outs of it, but... Yeah, it's yeah. quite central anyway, but yeah. Yeah, how oh, funny, yeah. So... Going through university, obviously, you was you was enjoying the social side of it a lot, which I think you're definitely not alone on that. I think a lot of people, some people, if anything, would probably go to university purely for the social side of it. Yeah. Um, did, did you have ideas? Did, did you kind of put plans in place for what you wanted to do after, or was it kind of finish it and then see what's available? Yeah, so I think what you observed before was that, you know, I, the subjects I enjoyed, I did more and then kept taking them up to the, the master's level, and there was quite a logical flow academically. And then I think to your question, I was planning to use the economics and the the business and the sort of finance math stuff to probably go and get a job in the city in London. That, that felt the natural next step. And there was a mixture of events that sort of changed what I actually then did do for a first job. One of them was that I was actually applying for some of those jobs in the city. Um, and I, I don't really know why I didn't get as many interviews and get offered any jobs. I mean, you know, would it be, could it be about disability and discrimination? Maybe. But I think looking back, I was also not that passionate in my applications and, and going for those jobs. It just felt like, oh, I need a job and... You know, I was applying, but I didn't feel like my heart was in it. And then I got a little bit pragmatic that, you know, to get a job would be good, even if it wasn't in that particular world. And I could always, once I've got a bit of experience in an office, you know, sort of sidestep back over to that more economics finance thing. So um, my stepmom had read a newspaper back in the town in Cambridgeshire where I'd grown up and where I would obviously be moving back to once I finished uni and there was a job at Scope, the disability charity. Have you heard of Scope? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, basically they were happened to have the HR department in this small town in Cambridgeshire. And I wasn't aspiring whatsoever to HR human resources as a career, but it was a low level entry office job. So I applied and I got the job um, I enjoyed being in an office and got used to office hours. And then they actually gave me a lot of training and development. So I learned to deliver training. So I became 
a trainer of diversity and some other courses that they delivered internally. Um, and then I also had always dreamt of living and working in London. And so there was a lot involved and we, we slightly jumped over the logistics difficulties of when I moved to uni of, you know, not having my mum and dad and some of the school staff, but needing to have strangers essentially doing my care was quite a big deal. Obviously finding accommodation um, that was adapted and accessible was generally a challenge when looking at universities. And it turned out Coventry was, I went, I went to uni in 2002, but it was by far and away one of the best unis at the time for the disability services. And that was really why I, a big reason why I chose Coventry. Um, and so, yeah, a similar thing happened that if I was going to move to London, I would need a social care budget to employ personal care assistance so I could, you know, live independently. And again, I'd need to find accommodation in London that was accessible, but obviously uh, affordable, which was another challenge in London. Um, a whole new challenge in itself, that is. Yeah, it was massive. I mean, it's almost like going through education and career is a challenge for anybody, just going through mm. those different levels. But when on the side you're managing care teams and funding and wheelchair, you know, funding wheelchairs and accessible accommodation, it, it is like running an enterprise just <laughs> yeah. for all the equipment and the funding and the care that I need as well. Mm. So what was, going back a bit actually to uni years, what was that like uh, in terms of your disability? Did you find that? Was it difficult to begin with, or did you kind of, like you said, I didn't know this, but you saying Coventry was one of the better universities in terms of disability and stuff like that. What, what was your general experience, and how did they treat you through those those four years? Yeah, so there, there was a disability office and a few people working that their job was to recruit and train and just oversee the people that were, you know, essentially did the care work. So whereas when I went to London, there wasn't that, um, you know, buffer or that support. It was all on me to do recruitment and interviews and training. So that that was really fantastic. It didn't mean that there weren't, you know, difficulties of having new people and that feeling a bit uncomfortable when, essentially a new person is a stranger and they had to help me you know with very personal care stuff so yeah I, th I think there were sort of nerves certainly day one I was very nervous about what it was going to be like with these four people that had been assigned to me um, you know what would they be like would we get on would they be able to do the care the way people at home had done it so yeah there, there was a lot of nerves and, and there definitely were dramas you know where people quit or I had to sack them and yeah like all sorts of stuff over the years that was not easy but mm. equally yeah when I look back now as you sort of mentioned it was definitely one of the best years of my life was that you know I enjoyed the studying meeting people having crazy nights out and all the rest of it <laughs> so yeah I think it it was just something I had to deal with and it most of the time it was stable and fine and every now and then there'd be a bit of drama Mm. Would you say that I kind of picture there, like you say, and obviously you kind of dismissing certain people, saying you know if it wasn't getting if it wasn't going right, you have to say you know, and it probably I'm guessing in a nice possible way, like this ain't working. Yeah. And you find someone yeah. new, and then obviously then later on when you went to London and you was doing it yourself, having to find the people yourself and the training, is that almost kind of indirectly geared for what you do now? Do you think? Yeah, it definitely helped. I mean, th there's various things through all of this story and journey that were completely separate, like, you know, having a disability and just wanting the world to be more inclusive and then, you know, doing recruitment for, for a care team and then now running my own business, you know, I'm having to do recruitment. So, like, there's all sorts of random events that happened that now I look back and think yeah that really led up and helped me 
to then do what I'm doing now to my full, you know, effort or full potential. But yeah, during those moments, they just feel difficult and challenging and they are just in isolation a moment in time. But yeah, I I definitely feel it it all helped to what happens now. Hmm. So going on from uh, working with Scope, what what was... How long was you there for, and then what was the the the, uh, the plans after? Yeah, I, mean, I guess one point I was going to touch on was that sure. the move to London was difficult, but mm. having the job at Scope, where I I got like a you know wasn't even a promotion, it was sort of a a similar role, but in their head office. So that was really cool. That while I went through the upheaval of the move and everything that it entailed I still had employment and money coming in and that my employer was very supportive and understanding I remember there were people at the head office that were just helping me to find accessible properties that I you know could potentially then move into so that that was really um, amazing and then yeah I, I did a little bit more in HR but then I moved into a fundraising job because it felt more around my sort of marketing and economic background um and then while I was doing that job and I had a couple of little you know moved around the department a couple of promotions but in 2009 I was at a conference it's called the Institute of Fundraising and there was this young American couple that did a workshop all about how social media was really powerful in that instance it was for fundraising but it clearly had lots of different applications so I then emailed this couple afterwards and was like really loved your workshop really inspiring I feel like there's something in digital storytelling that I would love to do for disability but I don't know where to get started and they helped me build my first website which is still live which is martinsibley.com and it really was just blogging I just wrote articles and made videos about living in London I was single at the time so you know I wrote about dating wrote about football you know whatever I Mm -hmm. lived I just shared as a blog and it yeah it got a lot of um, traction and it you know struck a chord and then from that I got invited on BBC Breakfast wrote for The Guardian did a lot of radio work and I suppose what you know, these days we call influencing. I sort of became a disabled influencer. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of leaving Scope, I was there five years. So in 2011, in the July, so this July, it will be 10 years now, um, I decided that because of the success of the blog and I could see the power of social media marketing as well as entrepreneurship, could bring new sort of solutions and in inverted commas to disability and inclusion. So I co-founded a magazine called Disability Horizons, co-founded a travel website that we had investment and then we sold it to Airbnb three years ago. And yeah. this April, I, co- I co-founded Purple Goat Agency, which is a disability influencer marketing agency. So there's sort of narrative is, you know, from the blog, I left the day job and then created these other businesses and went self-employed. And I just would summarise, I'm at this intersection of entrepreneurship, social media and disability inclusion. Mm. So going back a bit to um, like finding a place to live in London, I mean, it's one thing finding a place in London, you know, alone, just any, any, in general, you know, and London isn't cheap. Yeah. What, what what was that process like in trying to find a place and that was also accessible for you and and you could afford? Was that was it was it long and and frustrating or did you find it? I don't know, it's no, nothing's easy when it comes to London, but you know, was it fairly straightforward? No, it wasn't straightforward. And if if anything, there are now almost some laughable stories, but at the time they were very frustrating and, and negative experiences so I mean basically I I was in my early 20s so and the job you know was still quite a entry-level salary so 
it was, as you sort of said, that balance of access and affordability was quite difficult to have both. There there were lovely accessible properties well out of my price range. Yeah. And there were very affordable properties but completely not wheelchair accessible. But ultimately I I wanted to rent. I didn't want to buy I wasn't really that in much of a position to buy a, a, a property in that part of my life but I ended up you know looking on all the normal sort of gum tree and you know was writing to the person I'd love to come and check out your room just to say you know to check are your wheelchair accessible and I was then taking trips to London after my day's work in Cambridgeshire and going and looking at these properties and you know get there and they said yeah yeah it's all accessible no problem and then there's steps up to the front door, for example. So, yeah, it was just like ridiculous that they would say it's wheelchair accessible, but it's laughable how bad and incorrect that that information was. So mm. I sort of gradually went from re- looking at renting a room like most people that age would have done to, okay, I probably am going to need a whole property to myself. Like I need an adapted bathroom with a wet room shower and all that sort of access needs so okay well what if I rent a whole property not a room and even then there was nothing coming up and in the end there was a housing association where it was a new build it was basically you know perfect for what I needed but it had to be part rent part buy so I actually had to get a little mortgage for the buy part Um, so every month I was paying part rent and and part paying the mortgage off and so it wasn't what I wanted but it was the only way to actually sort of make the the London dream come true if you like. Mm. I'm sure there could be a lot more doing and even probably still now when it comes to you know independent living as a disabled person and just generally just because obviously the whole thing and it not just like housing it's like anything technology if it's seen as more accessible it's more expensive. Mm. So do you think there could be a lot more done in that in that area of especially housing? Obviously, you know, disabled people we wanna live in our own house just as much as a non disabled person would do. And you know, there's just these there's just things that have to be put in place, whether you're in a wheelchair, whether you're blind, whether you're deaf. And just make that any of these little things can make that possible. But yeah, a lot, I mean, of, a lot of places I think just don't on choose the... to do it. Yeah, sorry, Jeff. Yeah, I was gonna. I, I totally agree. Like, there's a problem here. And when I was at Scope, we ran campaigns, and since running Disability Horizons, you know, we've done a lot of articles on the topic. I mean, I think like when I on the social housing side, local authorities have more like a duty to have an amount of provision, and actually, there's still waiting lists, and there's still not enough, but there is at least a sort of, you know, legal mandate almost that mm. um, a certain amount are accessible and, and, you know, providing for disabled people. Obviously, where I was at was I was working, so I wasn't qualifying for social housing. I wasn't looking for social housing. I was looking to the private sector. Yeah. And there, in the end, there's just not enough supply, even though there is demand. Um, and I think you're right that, you know, whether there's actual technology that makes it more expensive or just quite frankly, like me being in a wheelchair, I just need a bigger space for moving and, and turning around. So you just are going to pay more per square foot. And that's almost not fair when it's because of the fact there is the disability. So I don't know a definitive answer, I think, other than that you know building more properties that are designed with disability and accessibility in mind that would definitely be the best way because it doesn't have to cost as much when you design it from the very beginning for everyone to be able to use it and then if there's a lot more supply coming back to my economics but if there's a lot more supply to meet the demand then the the price isn't as high as well so um, there's certainly a lot needs to be done in that area. It's not something I'm at the cold face of the last few years, 
but there are some really good projects out there um like Habinteg and accessible prs actually is one of our clients at purple goat now um they're doing a lot so if, you know, if your listeners want to delve more into that topic there's definitely some good stuff going on out there but yeah I mean, absolutely it, there's a problem and it does need addressing mm. um so just to touch on something actually when you say you went to that uh, conference and you met that american couple did obviously 2009 you said it was right yeah that's right so that's like kind of like the infant years of social media really it's kind of just getting started yeah and to have that you know that idea of social media can be a platform to you know influence and do what you need to do did you ever have the did you, did you kind of have that inkling that social media would grow and become the you know the juggernaut that it is now is that why you kind of thought this is a, a market you can you can step into yeah i think i don't know how much i consciously thought this is going to explode and be massive and like almost to the extent that it has become i don't know if i had that prediction or that awareness i probably would more point to that couple becoming like mentors and i think i just very sort of thought I mean, it was a very amazing moment in time because they were doing more and more work in london and often needed a place to stay so they crashed at mine and it meant they were sort of getting free accommodation and then during those evenings we would get drunk and we would you know i would share how i was getting on and what challenges i was having and so i had this really amazing you know couple of years of mentoring from these really amazing people so i i guess it was very much that they had that foresight and i was just very trusting of them and their knowledge and their foresight to follow and, and i you know i believed in it and I, and I saw those opportunities so yeah I, I don't know if i looked 10 years ahead but i certainly knew in that moment that i was seeing my blogs getting read by more and more people and then i was i also saw it as a way into the mainstream media i almost feel like now i don't actually need to go on telly to share my message i think i grew up in a time when it was like wow if you end up on tv it's like a dream crime and it was by the way like it really was a dream come true that i went on bbc breakfast but right now i can actually get a message to the right people far more efficiently on social media than i can on television um but then it was definitely a sort of gateway that i by blogging I then wrote for The Guardian and went on the BBC and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I certainly knew it had a big potential and power to spread a message that I believed wasn't being spread. Even working for a charity, I felt like there were limitations in the voice of everyday disabled people being heard. And for mm. me, that was the potential and the power of this. You say about the your opportunity to go on BBC Breakfast and write for the Guardian. Did they purely come off the back of your blogs? Is that what those opportunities came up from? Yeah, I think you know journalists started to look at Google searches and blogs and social media for you know guests and for stories. So yeah, the and it's the same in my travels. Um, I, I went and lived when I left Scope. I got some European Union funding. And I actually lived in Spain for quite a while. And I was okay. just blogging. The way I was blogging in London, I was just blogging in Spain. And then I got picked up by a lot of tourist boards. So then for the next, you know, many years until, well, probably mainly until the pandemic, actually. But um, maybe I was slowing down a little bit the year before that. But, yeah, for years I was always on the road visiting a different country and blogging about it. And it was all expenses paid by the tourist boards. And yeah, that all came because of blogging. Mm. So that's, I was speaking, I spoke to uh, Rachel Charlton Daly, if you know her. Oh, yeah. And she was, I, was, I think she was in a similar situation to kind of that same time where blogging was kind of the thing, wasn't it? Where like, you know, it was coming bigger and bigger and especially disabled bloggers, was, it was kind of obviously even now getting into the mainstream media as a disabled person is kind of difficult 
to, to have some away. It's, it's yours. It's your baby, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. And you can put whatever you whatever you think and whatever you feel into that and put it out there. Yeah. And then, I mean, I think prior to blogging and social media, as I kind of alluded to, the main way you would get your voice heard was in the big newspaper, TV, radio, and mm. you're relying on the editor to get your call or your email or to randomly know who you are. And so it, there was a massive thing around having to know the gatekeepers to get involved. Whereas ironically, mm. in blogging, that became a way that those editors or those gatekeepers use. So it was sort of, in the first instance, you write a blog and your parents read it. And then after a year, you've built up that, you know, core following. But even if you're not reaching hundreds of thousands or millions, when there's a niche story, you are that influencer, that that go-to person, that expert. Um, and so the irony was that in blogging, it, it ended up getting me in front of those gatekeepers after all. And did you feel that when you had those journalists and editors contacting you, asking to go on BBC Breakfast, asking to write for The Guardian, did that almost validate you in a way that, you know, that you, your work is getting out there and it's getting to important people? Yeah, I, mean, I think when I, you know, 10 years ago, if I look back, like, there was a lot about the, you know, the buzz that sort of, the, you know, almost dreams come true and ticking off bucket list items like you're on on TV in front of 8 million people, you're all expenses paid to Japan. Like there was a lot of sort of feeling like, wow, this is amazing. And I guess I'm just saying there was a slight, you know, it was tickling my ego very nicely. Um, whereas as time's gone on, you know, of course, the success and um, achievement is still really nice and I still very much believe in personal development but part of that part of that personal development journey is that you know now I'm getting a lot more of a kick with Purple Goat for giving opportunities to other influencers to work with brands and you know and do those trips abroad and all that kind of stuff so yeah I think that my priorities have shifted from me getting the benefit directly to actually I've still always been very mission driven and in the end what makes me happy is the world is gradually getting more and more inclusive. Mm. So, so that nicely leads on to uh, the now really obviously if you, yeah, with like you said a couple of times your purple get it. Do you, you want to kind of explain where how that idea came about and why he decided to to, to take it up? Yeah, I suppose, you know, back to those points of the, the dots joining. So my blog went well. And with a friend, we said, what if there was a kind of a blog slash digital magazine where other disabled people could write their stories and they maybe don't have to commit to blogging. But, you know, there's a sort of editorial angle, but ultimately it's a magazine by disabled people for disabled people and that was Disability Horizons. That's still going today. We get about 90,000 readers every month and, you know, it was a, a definite success in terms of giving a voice to people and I suppose giving positivity and tips and tricks and all those sorts of things for for the community. And then when we tried to work out how we might fund it we didn't want to go down the charity route we we knew there was something around businesses you know for different reasons would want to support such an initiative so we looked at the kind of old school advertising model that a lot of magazines generally have but what we found is that there were brands that were more particular to disability like wheelchair brands or adapted holiday brands that were still very traditional with like print media and leaflets and they hadn't really gone digital very much and then there were mainstream brands like supermarkets banks you know on and on and on that kind of like they were digital but they didn't understand that disability was a massive group of consumers that if they were a bit more 
accessible and inclusive, they actually would benefit on a business level, not just a kind of corporate social responsibility or diversity and inclusion, but there was an actual, you know, profitability angle. And so the more we looked into this, trying to just get someone to do a sponsored editorial on Horizons wasn't really big enough for, for those kind of brands. And then gradually as influencer marketing in its own right has grown and lots of disabled influencers have, you know, grown out of the social media world, I saw the opportunity not just to say, you know, advertise on one platform like Horizons, but go into a brand and say, look, there's 1.3 billion disabled people globally, 14 million in the UK. There's like a spending power, 8 trillion globally. And I think it's like 260 billion in the UK. So let us help you to be more accessible but most of all to communicate that you, you know, you want to employ disabled people and you want customers to be, you know, from the disabled community to become customers. And so in the end, Purple Goat is connecting both the disability brands and the mainstream brands with disabled consumers by working with disabled talent and sort of data around, you know, paid media. So using Facebook advertising and that kind of stuff as well. So we're, we're a marketing agency that works on behalf of a brand, but we're actually bringing e- economic opportunities to disabled people and getting disabled consumers more heard and understood by those big businesses. Mm. Would you say that's, I've noticed since I've kind of got more involved in the disability community, especially on Twitter, that trying to get you know, get the attention of these companies or, you know, high profile people and kind of saying, look, if you do these things here, this is what you can get. And this only, in some cases, it costs you nothing. So do you think it's that that's the biggest challenge of opening the eyes of that particular person or company and telling them what, how they can benefit? Is yeah, that, I, mean, I think there are certain the industries and certain products that are sometimes more difficult or more expensive to make inclusive for everybody. Um, However, I also caveat that, that, you know, just because something's difficult to be accessible for a wheelchair user, like putting a lift or a a, a big, you know, like a a concrete ramp, a company that's smaller might say, okay, that's going to cost, they should still do it. I'm just saying that there's a, reality check that that might take longer to do but actually you know there's lots of different types of impairments of of the 14 million disabled people in the UK there's you know visually impaired hearing impaired neurodiverse hidden disabilities so I think to your point about you know the the sort of that there are ways of you know whether it costs a bit more or a bit less is one aspect of the conversation but I think actually there are brands that are already quite accessible to all disabled people or certain parts of the disabled community, but they've just never marketed to those people. They've never said, you know, actually we've got, you know, our building is accessible or we've made these changes for certain types of disabilities. I think you've got brands that are already quite accessible should start to just be better with their marketing, but yeah, then you have got. Sorry, what's that? Put themselves out there a bit more. Basically. Exactly, yeah, like they would with any other thing. Like you know, it, we, there's a statistic. There's like six hundred thousand vegans in the UK, and there's been a massive, massive explosion of you know vegan-friendly restaurants and you know eateries, etc. And then there's 40 million disabled people, and yet you never see advertising and marketing. I think the statistic is 0.06% of adverts have disability, whereas 20% of the population have a disability. So there's a massive thing around marketing and advertising that we're pushing, but I still think there are brands that need to employ more diverse workforces and obviously check is their website accessible to everyone? Is their venue accessible to everyone? And yeah, they have to do some improvements and changes as well. 
But I think in the end, it's about co-creation, that it's with disabled people's input rather than making assumptions and then saying, oh, no one actually came, even though we did that. It's like, well, yeah, have you spoke to disabled consumers about what the solutions are? Because that's what you'd normally do in any other consumer market. Mm, definitely, yeah. So, Purple Gage, did you say you was it co-founded in April of last year, did you say? Yeah, I would say it's a pandemic baby, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that. What, what was that like, launching a company or a business in the middle of, you know, a world crisis? <laughs> it's kind of been easy. Yeah, I mean, it, I suppose, weirdly, it wasn't as bad as it might sound. Um, we, we were already going to launch. It wasn't like we launched because no. the pandemic struck and we felt there was some new need or new urgency. Like, we, we were already planning to, to launch in general. Um, on a personal level, I would have had to have gone into London with our kind of co-founders and our sister agency, which is a large multinational marketing agency. So personally, I found that I've been more productive and less tired because I've been able to just be at home and not have to do those long day trips to London and back. So that that was, a for me, was almost a weird upside to, to the situation. And then when you look at marketing in general, a lot of businesses have had to put media budget into digital because those other offline marketing budgets were not able to be spent because of the lockdown. So there's been a rise in the spending in digital marketing, which obviously as a digital marketing agency was of, of benefit. And then I think in terms of disability, there's just been a lot more awareness around, you know, Black Lives Matter put diversity much more on the map and that that is also a good thing for disabled people that businesses are getting a bit more social in how they act and Mm. I also think that because we've been able to win business with bigger brands um, we've then been able to pay freelancers and influencers quite a lot of money so we've actually brought jobs to disabled people during the pandemic so Mm. yeah there have been challenges because of the pandemic but in a weird way it sort of certain things did actually mean that you know there were kind of yeah almost like benefits in a weird way yeah yeah that that makes sense it's almost like an indirect like you you wouldn't on first thought that you wouldn't think it would you know a global pandemic would would benefit and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing, isn't it? Because you, you can say a global pandemic benefits and you think, oh, no, don't say that. <laughs> it's just like, you know, don't get wrong. The past 12 months have been awful, you know. So, but the fact that it can kind of, like you say, enforce, it's, everyone's been forced onto that digital platform and your company naturally is working on that digital platform, it almost opens more doors and gives you more opportunities to to flourish and, and yeah. do what you do as a marketing agency you know, there are brands that we might have worked with if there wasn't a pandemic that we didn't because they couldn't spend any marketing budget but then there were other brands that we might not have worked with in normal times that we did because so yeah I think on the business level it, it, you know we were able to pet, sort of focus in areas where we knew there was still you know, money there and budget there and, and the the businesses that were still doing okay. I think to your other point, yeah, we're both on the same page as I'm sure all the listeners are, that, you know, the pandemic, the virus has been very worrying and I've had to make, you know, various changes around being sort of labelled in the vulnerable group and I have to have care assistance coming in the house and, I, you know, the risk that brought... And I had to reschedule my wedding that was meant to be in Poland last May. So, yeah, don't get me wrong, that the pandemic has affected everyone and it has affected me in certain ways. But just speaking to Purple Goat, um, less so, I suppose. Mm, and on, on a, actually, you kind of touched on it there, on a personal level, how has the past 10 months or so been for you? Obviously, like you say, you, you, you've had to have that kind of, extra trust in the people that are coming into your house to care 
stuff like that. But on a kind of personal level, have you found it difficult generally, or have you just taken it day by day? Yeah, I did a few posts online about it over the months that I guess the, the strategy or the tactic I've had is to, to look at what I can control. So, you know, I might dip in on the news for the latest updates, but I've tried to not get consumed with the onslaught of the threat and the fear and the anxiety. And so I've sort of limited my news consumption for that reason. Um, I've, you know, gone out every day on the dog walk, so I've made sure I've got fresh air, but I've then just, you know, made sure I've not gone near other people. And, yeah, I, I think sort of I'm in a routine where I get up, do a, do a full day's work, walk the dog, have a nice dinner, watch a film, go to bed, repeat. And I'm missing travels a lot, and I'm missing, you know, certain friends and family and social interactions, but I'm just trying not to dwell on it because, yeah, there's nothing I can do to change it anyway, yeah. right? Yeah, so that's a good way of looking at it. Actually, just controlling the controllable is, especially for disabled people, you know, so in some cases, getting out is just, you know, it's not as easy as just going, all right, I'm going out, see ya. Whereas we have to kind of, you know, saying if if you need to care, you might need to make sure someone's available to come with you and, you know, if if you've got a guard dog or, or whatever it is. So to have that routine of, like you're saying, literally just do what you need to do in the day, whether that's working, and then also making time for yourself, which I think has been the most important thing over the past year or so, is, is yeah, do your work and stuff like that. But because it's so repetitive, you know, it's literally, what, five, six days a week, just doing the same thing it's so important to to sit back and be like right i need to go for a walk or i need to just literally just do nothing for a bit it's, it's massively important for yeah. mental health definitely i mean, that, I mean that's, that's it isn't it it's we've talked a lot about mental health in sort of society in more recent years which is great and then i think you know the, the there's a pandemic of the virus i think there is a pandemic of mental health problems now um mm. And yeah, all, back to what we just said, all we can do is try and stay positive and gratitude for the positives and, you know, all that good stuff. And at the same time, you know, we should all give ourselves permission that it's also fine to feel a bit down or a bit pissed off sometimes as well. That's normal. Yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, it it will. We don't know when and how, but it, it will pass. So just have to kind of, yeah, bide our time and ride it out. Ride the wave, as some would say. Yeah, so, exactly. So, obviously, we've just come to 2021. Um, you know, it's kind of... It's maybe a bit easier to plan ahead because we've got some, you know... We've got a time frame, potentially, of, you know, when things can start opening back up and the world can start to spin again. But for yourself, do you have any personal slash professional goals or targets you'd like to reach this this year um in many ways sort of building on some goals from last year and the, the, the kind of more recent years there's been a theme of personal development you know I've like done a lot around changing my diet and doing a bit more exercise I'm 37 now and I'm yeah just sort of was getting a bit chubbier and couldn't eat the same <laughs> foods that I did in my 20s so you know just bit around personal well-being and personal health it has been a, a pillar so you're kind of building on that um, obviously the the business things have, have been building up and building up and we, we've set a soft target to do a million in turnover this year and the way we're going already in January we, we would you know probably smash that if we carry on so there's a lot of goals around growing purple goat working with bigger brands, you know, doing, creating more opportunities for disabled people. Um, and, yeah, I suppose to travel again just once, you know, things calm down and it's safe to do so, whenever that is, um, definitely to, to travel. And I suppose I touched upon the wedding, but, you know, it would be, be great to eventually tie the knot as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah con congratulations when that does happen. That's, thank uh, you, mate. thank you. Yeah, that, that is a... A pain in the backside, you know, something as big as that, especially especially when you're abroad, 
like you said, in Poland, it's just just kicking the teeth in it, especially when it's like we're saying, it's something you can't control. Yeah. So one more thing to kind of round it all up. If you know, there's obviously there's, there's loads of people, young and old, wanting to get into that kind of influencer world kind of thing, and especially more so in the disability community. Is there a message that you could give to those people, kind of, you know, a message of positive, positivity, I suppose, or just general advice or guidance without putting you on the spot? Yeah, no, no, it's always enjoy trying to just pass on experiences and thoughts that, that may help others. Um, when you say influencer, like, could that be for social activism and political change as well as entrepreneurship or do you think have a sense that your audience is maybe more in one camp or the other mm, I'd probably say a, a mixture of both really because yeah, I, I know people so yeah just, just say what you feel you know is uh, is valuable yeah but I guess whether it's to do with you know ending up with a dream job or starting a business or being a freelancer and whether it's more around you know, raising awareness and, and changing uh, attitudes and changing policy and whether that's all in one, the, the, the general pillar um, is about content. So I just think, like, we all have something to say. I think people feel a bit awkward that, well, who are they and why would people care what they've got to say? And I felt like that when I started blogging in 09 and I still feel like that every few years. I sort of think I've said everything I've got to say. <laughs> But you realise that, you know, you just put out whatever feels important and relevant and just inside, you know, from your heart, not sound corny, but like just just more express the things you want to say. And there's always someone out there that will find you that needs to hear what you've said. Like, I know that someone will be listening to this episode as well as all your other episodes, Jamie, that there's one particular point that really lands and it really helps them. Um, and I've, you know, I've done hundreds of different interviews, but I know that there'll be someone on this interview today that will benefit from me sharing my story and, and testament to you for creating the platform and inviting me on and being interviewed. So I think anyone that wants to go down that influencer route is, yeah, just create content, speak your truth and just know that you will be helping people and it kind of will just go on its own journey like I couldn't have said 10 years ago that I would then be running this you know social influencer marketing agency that's just what ended up happening but there were all sorts of amazing things that happened on the journey so yeah I think to speak your truth keep putting content out there and in a way enjoy the ride sort of just be open to all sorts of random things coming at you but you have to be consistent and diligent in the content creation and building your community otherwise those things won't be as likely to happen and I think it's definitely it's, it's, it takes time doesn't it, to, to build anything yeah you've got to be patient it's the key thing you can't just like you know start a podcast or start a blog and think right this time next week going to be invited on to BBC yeah. <laughs> you've got to be patient you've got to you know like you're saying speak speak the truth and put your heart into whatever it is that you're doing yeah and there's something about many goals like again I didn't necessarily sit and write a list of goals but I've always been a bit of a dreamer and you know I remember dreaming about what if I could travel the world and write about it what if I could be on mainstream telly what if I could you know, get to know famous disabled people. Mm. And then, you know, a few years later, I'm in the Power 100 list of influencers. I got third one year, and I'm in the top 10 with all these people that were my idol. So I think you've got to almost see it to then for it to be able to come true. So I do think there's something about dreaming big, but then having the patience, as you've just said, it won't happen in a week, but it... If you plug away, it will happen in, you know, two, three, four years. Mm, 100%. So I think that's a, I think that's a good good way to, to end on. Um, thank you for coming on. Um, if people want to 
find you and the things that you do? Where can they go? Yeah, I mean, at Martin Sibley, Martin with a Y. Um, so that sort of social media and the, the website is everything I'm up to. Um, and then there's updates there about Disability Horizons, the magazine and the shop we've got, um, Purple Goat in terms of, you know, particularly influencers that want to be able to get involved with working with brands. Purple Goat's a good place. But yeah, I think most of all, just follow my personal channels and, and the rest kind of flows through that. 100%. So yeah, thank you for, thank you for coming on once again, Martin. Thank you to everyone for listening and hope you've enjoyed listening just as much as I have done a talking to Martin. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll catch you up very soon.